MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We're on vacation this week, but that doesn't mean we don't have an amazing show for you today. Emily's List President, LaFonza Butler, talks to us about electing pro-choice candidates in 2024. But first, we have Princeton professor Julian Zelizer here to talk about the historical precedent for third-party candidates. Welcome to Fast Politics, Julian. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Delighted to have you, your fancy historian. We love our fancy Princeton historians. We try to get them on as much as possible. I want to talk to you about the cage match that we are about to spend 16 months or more covering. And that is what it very much looks like will be a rematch between Biden and Trump. Is there any historical precedence for this? Not really. Uh, This is very unusual to have this configuration, to have this matchup. You know, it's not just the matchup of these two guys who have run, but it's also the matchup of a president, former president who's indicted many times over. And so it's one of those very unique configurations that I don't know how it's going to unfold. It's funny because when we were texting before this, you said, well, what do you want to talk about? And I said this and this. And then I said, you know, I'm a candidate with multiple indictments running for president. And you were like, there's not a lot of precedent for that. I mean, is there there is some like hinky, weird precedent, but not much, right? 
No, absolutely. Like, so in 1920, Eugene Debs ran. He was the socialist and he was in jail. He had been put into prison for the Sedition Act and and he runs, uh, you know, he doesn't win, but it's a campaign. And uh, I think that's one kind of model people talk about. Rick Perry, who was the governor of Texas, was also indicted when he ran. His campaign was a little like DeSantis. You know, it was the next big thing until it wasn't. And that wasn't why it failed. So there are those kinds of examples as well. Yeah. The thing that with Trump, which I feel like is really important to talk about, is that he sort of takes advantage of the fact that there is no historical precedent. Yeah. I mean, that is true, or at least to create that impression. I mean, when there is no precedent, people just can't figure out where this all goes. There's not that normal roadmap people who follow or in politics have about how this plays out because you literally don't know what's coming next. And uh, by creating the idea of unprecedented, he he shakes people up, I I think. He's trying to scare them. uh, And often they don't know exactly how to react or they're worried that things will unfold in ways you don't think they will. Yeah. And that is such an interesting and such an important data point when we're talking about this for a minute. I mean, we're seeing now Trump is trying to kick down the can with all of these indictments, see if he can kick the can down the road, trying to keep all this stuff from, you know, be able to run without these things hurting his campaign. Obviously, that will, you know, I mean, he can control some of this, but he really can Like, I mean, I think what's sort of interesting about Trump is that fighting accountability is something that he's quite good at. No, he's he's good at it. I mean, there's an element of Trump where he can survive these, meaning he's had a long career politics where he's evading the law, he's evading problems, and he's figured out how to skirt the line. He also has a little bit of Richard Nixon in him, meaning not just what he does, but he loves to pit himself against an establishment. And Nixon did that all the time when people attacked him. Uh, it was the system that was broken, not him. And it wasn't simply him being attacked. It was his supporters. And as Nixon said, the silent majority was who he stood for. And Trump does that as well. And I think at some level, he's been effective at each indictment coming his way. Somehow it, it becomes a way where he can rally support He can define himself as an anti-establishment person. uh, And, you know, he can also use all of this to threaten the people investigating him. Yeah, it's such a sort of interesting thing. I would like to get to Nixon, get back to Nixon for a minute, because when you listen to Trump, so much of what Trump sounds like is like Nixon and Spiro Agnew. Talk to me about what where this Trumpist, racist, nationalist, otherism comes from. It's a mix. I mean, he is one of the few politicians who wants to emulate Richard Nixon instead of running away from Nixon. It's fascinating. But I think his rage against Washington, his rage against coastal elites, Nixon did that all the time. Nixon, even though he was as establishment as you could be, had been vice president, senator, he always presented himself as this guy who was continually under attack by the Harvard-educated you know, State Department kind of officials who didn't appreciate what he was. And I think that was his mantra. I think uh, Trump has picked that up. And then there's another element of Republican politics that was there in the 60s for sure. It's a kind of reactionary strand of American politics that's against civil rights legislation, that's against changes in the country that created more diversity. And those have only intensified 
since Nixon was in office. Nixon was not as uh, eager to totally jump into that kind of politics as Trump is. But I think both strands have been there since the 60s and 70s. And Trump has just both brought them together and elevated them. And he does everything in broad daylight. Yeah, but there's certain like they're coming for you, but they have to go through me to get to you. That kind of weird, like somehow I'm being prosecuted for your persecuted and prosecuted for your sins. It's like almost a kind of bizarro Jesus thing. I mean, is there a precedent for that? I mean, was that it from the Nixon? Is that a George Wallace? I mean, where does that come from? Well, I mean, in terms of actual investigations, yes, Nixon, until until the end, when he resigns in August of 74, he and many Republicans are adamantly defending the White House. And uh, they were arguing this is just a partisan witch hunt. It's an effort by Democrats to undercut what they hated, meaning that Republicans were the ones who won at the end of the 60s. And so he did make that argument until the very end. Bill Clinton did a little of this. You know, when he was being impeached, one of the ways in which he rallied support was to say this is partisan Republicans, not untrue, such as Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House, who were trying to go after not just him, but what he stood for. They were trying to reverse the legacy of the 1960s. So it is a strategy we've seen before. I don't think either Nixon or Clinton came anywhere close to what Trump has done and is able to kind of use the ways he's able to use these moments to his advantage. I am struck by that we find Trump very, like this sort of partisan rhetoric, yes, it definitely... You know, we definitely saw Clinton had issues with this. We saw Nixon had issues with that, you know, that they both sort of did to a certain extent. I mean, Nixon obviously is not comparable to Clinton. And and Clinton, you could say there's no one on God's green earth who doesn't think that Ken Starr was partisan. So, I mean, yes, he definitely, you know, he definitely committed a crime, but there was also partisan leaning. What I think is interesting I'm thinking about is like, so Ron DeSantis or DeSantis, because no one knows how you pronounce it because he won't clarify and he pronounces it both ways. Uh, Ron DeSantis was saying in an interview, like the thing that he did, which I actually think is quite smart and is why he's much, much more dangerous than Trump is he said, well, you know, this is partisan because and he pointed to the Alvin Bragg, which is the least very much the least strong indictment. Right. I mean, there are real, you know, the classified documents. I mean, you have stuff where you really have him on tape saying, like, I have a classified document here. Let me show it to you. It's a little bit smart. I mean, do you think it flies with the right or no? Well, I mean, there's two different strategies. The Santa strategy is in some ways more familiar. You kind of pick at the weakness of a case or you uh, the weakest parts of the case, you highlight those and you say, that's what this is all about. And people don't really know what the, I think the whole Alvin Bragg case, it, it's not as clear to people what the issue is. And even legal people say it's a little weaker. And so that is a strategy. You ignore the rest. Right, let's not talk about the overturning the election that seems to be coming. Let's not talk about stealing classified diet. Let's talk about that one. I think it can be effective. I mean, I think what DeSantis and other Republicans have is this incredible conservative media ecosystem, which will amplify that message. They will make right. the case after DeSantis has. Trump's strategy is different. It's just like flood the whole public with just a lot of smear, untruth, lies. 
Uh, and just to characterize the whole thing from Bragg to the January 6th investigation as one big uh, partisan hit job against him. And, and I don't know which is more effective in this day and age. Look, the polls suggest Trump is on to something, at least compared to DeSantis. But I think both can work. And I think sometimes Democrats underestimate uh, how these counterattacks can undercut some of the political damage you'd expect either of these two candidates to suffer from all of this. Right. I mean, the game here is to try to sort of kick the can, procrastinate, make it seem like it's a false equivalency, like there was a political. There's always this feeling, and it may just be among a certain group of people, but I definitely always sense that there's a feeling that the American electorate is getting dumber. Is it getting dumber? What is the phenomenon that we're seeing right now? I don't know if we're getting dumber. I mean, I think we all of us live in this atmosphere where it's very hard to discern what's true and what's not. And overloaded with information. And the good news is a lot of that information actually makes us smarter. I think, you know, politics is less secretive. We know more about what's going on. It's hard to BS the public. On the other hand, there's so much out there, unfiltered, unedited, that I do think uh, it's easier to kind of trick people or distract people today than it was in the 1970s or 1980s. And, and secondly, I do think a lot of people are disengaged from politics. And so it's not that dumber, but they're not really as interested, sometimes justifiably, in being totally engaged and sorting through the kind of information that comes their way. And politicians exploit both of those to kind of move forward or to disseminate ideas that just aren't true. Yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, I think about this sort of fake news phenomenon. This is not a new phenomenon, fake news. I mean, there is a historical precedent of fake news. Will you talk to us about that? All the things I didn't tell you I was going to talk to you about, I am now talking to you about. Sorry. I know. I mean, fake news is, is always there. There's the level of fake news where, you know, conspiratorial ideas make their way into the public in the 1950s and 60s. There was, you know, conspiratorial ideas about McCarthy. how- McCarthy. McCarthy or how the Soviets were putting fluoride in our water. Um, there's a famous scene in Dr. Strangelove, which comes out in 64, where that's a, a main part of the story. And, and those were circulating ideas about uh, race and race riots. I mean, that always was out there. It didn't get as mainstream as it does today. So there wasn't a Fox News that was kept the fake news. And I think that's the kind of marriage of two forces which has been pretty destructive. But you had tabloid journalism. I mean, you had things like that, right? Absolutely. But again, the National Enquirer was not kind of hitting the same audience as the people who read the New York Times or the Washington. That's no longer true. There's also been high level fake news. So, you know, anyone who studies Vietnam and the war uh, can go through that Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon presidency and see how much misinformation the public was being told about what was going on in the war, things that were just categorically not accurate, not capturing what was on the ground, ultimately led to a lot of the distrust we have today and a lot of the public sentiment that's susceptible to these other ideas. Yeah, that is such an interesting thing. I mean, there were certain things like, didn't the public not know how sick FDR was? Yeah, they didn't know how sick FDR was. They didn't know about all of you know, John F. Kennedy's relationships. 
So there's that level also of it. That wasn't hiding it, though, so much as there were things that reporters just weren't interested in covering or they didn't think it was needed or right to cover. The fake news is different. Information's being pumped out that's just not true. And I think that in some ways is even more dangerous because the hidden stuff could be found. It could be discovered. This becomes much harder to push back against. Yeah, it really does. And it's interesting because it is like that is the same thing with Trump, right? This uncharted territory, the place where there just isn't precedent. You can't look back on it and say this is like Nixon. This is like this. I wonder, like, with this third-party candidate stuff, you clearly see a lot of people on the right nervous that their guy, who is likely going to be the nominee unless something really huge happens, and even if something really huge happens, I mean, I think he's going to be the nominee, that there's really a push on the right to to get a third-party candidate going because they know that's really the only way they can win. We've seen, I mean, I remember, like, I mean, you think about all of the third party candidates. I mean, can we just have a two second on third party candidates? Yeah, I mean, third party candidates can cause damage. And I think people underestimate what they can do. It is true that the odds of a third party being victorious are, you know, as minimal as they get. And and we don't have samples of this other than the Republican Party. That's really uh, it in terms of success. But Third parties have a long history of damaging one of the other two. So the most famous of recent memories is obviously Ralph Nader in 2000, uh, who many people think definitely hurt Al Gore in Florida in particular, cut some of his vote. George Wallace in 1968, many believe when he ran, he actually took Democratic votes away from Hubert Humphrey by kind of playing to racial backlash and, and fears in the Northern ethnic white working class electorate. That hurt Humphrey in a very close election. And Ross Perot, right? Ross Perot in 1992. Um, people dispute kind of how, how it worked, but a lot of Republicans think uh, his focus on the deficit and his issues hurt George H.W. Bush. So... Now, there's a there's a long history of of these parties being significant, uh, not always, but those are some examples that we see. And so this year, I, I think both Republicans and Democrats have their eye on people like Joe Manchin. They have their eye on primary challenges like Robert Kennedy Jr. And because we're in this unprecedented world, no one's as comfortable decisively saying this won't matter uh, because through that in 2016 and it mattered. Julian, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Of course, always a pleasure. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. LaFonza Butler is the president of Emily's List. Welcome to Fast Politics, LaFonza Butler. Thanks for having me. Very delighted to have you. So explain to us a little bit about what your organization does. Yeah, you know, Emily's List is a 38-year-old organization that has worked to create the legacy of changing the face of politics. We help to elect Democratic pro-choice women to office at every level of the ballot. Our first race was helping Barbara Mikulski get elected to the U.S. Senate in 1986, being the first woman elected in her own right. From there, the organization's story really has taken off and has had great impact. From the first year of the woman in 1992 to the sort of second iteration of the year of the woman in 2018, um, it has been this organization that is 
the largest political resource for women in politics. That is very cool. So talk to me about what you're working on right now. You know, Molly, there is so much happening in the world, in U.S. politics right now. Some things that we are focused on now include the uh, elections that are happening in Virginia in this this year, 2023. Um, The Virginia state legislature is going through its first elections after redistricting. And it is a critical state, a bellwether state for what uh, the kinds of conversations and issues that are top of mind for voters and elected officials for in preview for 2022. Virginia is of utmost importance for an organization like ours because it is one of the few states on the eastern seaboard where a woman can still access reproductive care beyond 12 weeks. And it is important that We elect a legislature that will help to make sure that uh, that remains true. And the governor of Virginia has already said that he intends to put forward anti-abortion six-week ban legislation in Virginia and having a Democratic pro-choice legislature, which women will be an incredibly important part. Um, is is a real, real priority for us. Just like everyone else, uh, Molly, we are um, looking forward and in preparation for 2024 elections and helping women who are running, deciding now if they are going to run for office, make those decisions, stand up their campaigns, hire their staff, and you know sharpen their um, messages and engagement to to voters and you know we are very much focused on supporting Vice President Harris in 2023 and and 2024 and beyond our nation has never had a woman break through the doors of the White House until the election of Vice President Harris and because of her presence we are as a nation are having conversations about reproductive health care. We are having conversations about the Black maternal health and maternal health generally. We are talking about the importance of child care and sustainable child care for working class families across the country. And so her presence and supporting the role and the agenda of President Biden is critically important to continue and to break through glass ceilings that have yet to be shattered by women and and particularly women of color um, in elected office across the country. And we are making that a priority as well. So winning uh, more seats in the Senate Getting to a Democratic, getting back to a Democratic majority in the House, protecting the White House, helping to elect governors, women who are running for governor's offices, as well as mayor offices and other constitutional officers and state legislatures. We are really, Molly, trying to do all the things to advance representation and voice of women and a diverse set of women all over the country as we work to protect reproductive freedom and restore fundamental rights for people, all people in the U.S. Can we talk about some of the uh, anti-choice Democrats and how are you addressing that? I mean, do you support anti-choice Democrats? Are you (laughs) able to uh, run against them? I mean, I know we interviewed someone in Virginia who was running against, who was primarying an anti-choice Democrat. Talk to us about that. Yeah, look, we're very clear that we only support Democratic pro-choice women. We do not have a problem, nor do we shy away from challenging anti-choice Democrats. It is um, so essential 
uh, to the mission of Emily's List, that there is a shared set of values with the American people, with every candidate that we support. And, you know, consistently over decades and in, and in, at record levels now, it is clear that the American people are in favor of women and families being able to make their reproductive health decisions with them between themselves and their doctors. And that has been the legacy of, of Emily's List. And so we were proud to be supporting La Cherise Aired in Virginia. Yes, we had her on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I yeah, forgot her name. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she was challenging the last anti-choice Democrat who happened to be a man uh, in Virginia by the name of Joe Morrissey. She defeated him in that primary. And we are have been supporting La Charisse in her public service for a number of years now. And, and we're, we're proud to be standing with her this time around as well. What we have learned over our 38 years in operation is that the way for women to really break through, through Democratic primaries in particular, is to challenge and to create a real contrast between the positions of Democratic pro-choice women and, and anti-choice Democrats. And uh, the way that, and w- how we have gotten to historic um, representation numbers in Congress and in state legislatures for women across the country is, you know, really being in those primaries, giving voters a clear contrast and doing the work and, and, and investing, frankly, um, to help them to, to win. I want to ask you about what it looks like in Virginia Virginia is a one term gubernatorial. You can't run for reelection. So what does the Virginia gubernatorial look like? That's a part of the great work that we do here at Emily's List. We are one of the organizations, one of the very few organizations who works to recruit candidates and help to actually build the pipeline along with all of the other sub- candidate services and supports that I've talked with you about thus far. And so helping to create that bench and pipeline of Democratic pro-choice candidates is really a part of how we see the horizon of future elections. And so sharpening the candidates that Emily's List is working with, we have been present in a number of organizations and allies have been present in Virginia. There are many Democratic candidates, pro-choice candidates who I think are going to be looking to run for governor in the state of Virginia. And we're going to be working to keep our eye on the women who are ready and prepared to engage the Virginia voters and the Commonwealth and talk about their vision for the future. But it's going to be I think it's going to be a crowded governor's race. Oh, yeah, I do think so. I think voters are going to have some the the ability to make some clear choices around uh, around the differences between those candidates. There still are anti-choice Democrats in the party, but less and less. I mean, are primarying these candidates a priority? It definitely is. For women in this country who thought that their reproductive health care choices were theirs to make, had right for the first time in almost 50 years, had a right taken away from them. Um, you, you are right to note that there are still anti-abortion Democrats. I mean, just not long ago, it was a third rail issue in the Democratic Party, I think particularly because people always thought that Roe would always be there. No one ever expected that a Supreme Court would take a right away from the yeah. American people. 
is a priority for Emily's list and the candidates that we support is that we put forward candidates who stand with the, the will of the majority of people in this country. And whether that is through a primary process or um, leaning heavily in in a in a um, in the general election, whether it starts with candidate recruitment and helping to build a coalition, a winning coalition around that candidate, we are determined that we have to do everything that we can to ensure that we continue to be a representative voice for the will of the American people. And increasingly, the Republican Party is making sure um, that people understand that they are anti-abortion, that they want to strip away women's rights, that they want to have the power and control to make decisions about people's bodies, their families, and their freedom. And organizations like Emily's List and the candidates that we support have to stand in clear contrast to that. Tell me about a candidate you're excited about. Oh, my goodness. There are so many. <laughs> or give well, me two or whatever. I mean, just somebody who you're just is top of mind right now. Yeah, top of mind for me is Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks, who is running in the state of Maryland to be the next U.S. senator in the state of Maryland. There are no women currently in the Maryland delegation, congressional delegation, not one. County Executive Angela Alsobrooks has been elected a number of times. She has a story and, a, and an, a lived experience that I think resonates in the state of Maryland. And she is just proven to be a fighter for the people of, of the state of Maryland and to be with her, to campaign with her, to make phone calls with her, to fundraise with her. is just a real play, source of inspiration for me at this at this moment. Top of mind, you know, her daughter is just graduated from high school and and he is uh, getting ready to go to college. And to, to know that she is balancing both public service and uh, being a single parent is another opportunity for the legacy of Emily's List to really be on display, where we are saying to and in saying with women who have a passion for public service that their voice matters in the decisions that face this country and the future and future generations. I was hoping you could talk about how hard it is to get women to run for office. Yeah, that's a great topic. And, and Molly, you know, I think in the life of Emily's List, the reason why women hesitate to run for office has changed and evolved. I speak with our founder, a woman by the name of Ellen Malcolm, who her, along with her like 25 friends in her basement 38 years ago, decided that they were going to help women raise money to prove to the democratic system that was run by men that they could raise the money to be taken seriously. And that was the greatest barrier that they identified for, for women candidates at that time. We know now in the 21st century, in the year 2023, money remains a challenge. There's data and research by the Barbara Lee Foundation and many others who have done the, the research to understand um, that women get less fundraising investment from people who would give men the maximum. They give women a fraction of that. We also know from those um, research organizations that misinformation and disinformation are disproportionately directed towards women and disproportionately directed towards women of color. We know that uh, the increased threats of violence and attacks 
are directed towards women. And so there is a lot of consideration that women today have to be willing to take on in order to run for office. In addition to the fact that it is so expensive in years past, it is men who would say, you know, I am going to run for office and my wife is going to stand by me. In our second gentleman, uh, actually, we get to see a very different example. We get to see a, a husband who is choosing to stand by his wife as she chooses to serve the country. We have women like Congresswoman Katie Porter, who also is a single mom who has to make decisions about child care and think very intensively about child care as she is doing the work of representing her her constituency and in her district. And so the difficulty that we face in convincing um, women that to pursue their passion for public service has gotten much greater as the years have gone by and the dynamics of our political environment has, have shifted and changed. On average, I think the research says that a woman says no seven times before she actually is saying yes to running for office. And we know that there have been occasions where people, where men just sort of wake up and walk down the stairs and tell, tell America that they want to be president. It is uh, tough terrain to navigate, but I think the policies that come forth, the discussions that are able to be had because of the presence of women and diverse women at the table really does move our country forward. And, and that's the America that we want to pursue. Thank you so much. This is so great. I'm so appreciate having you on. Thank you so much, Molly. We appreciate being a part of it. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, fam. I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith 
You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.